I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. I'm so excited to discuss my sponsor today, which is Page One Books, because my summer book bundle is ready on pageonebooks.com. And the bundle that I've put together includes three books that I picked, uh, Montauk by Nicola Harrison, More Myself by Alicia Keys, and I Miss You When I Blink by Mary Laura Philpot, all of which have been on this podcast here. Uh, it includes a Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Beach Tote, a cute little library card pencil slash cosmetic case, and a water bottle for staying hydrated, plus a little... Um, thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page number one books.com and check out my page one books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, a housewarming, if you actually go somewhere or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page one books.com. Hi, happy Monday. Actually, I don't like when people say happy Monday. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, welcome back. I hope you guys had a great weekend. This is the second week of my July book blast. So get excited. The first day is advice Monday. So it's a sorted advice all day for this Monday. I hope you enjoy it and stay tuned all week. We're going to have kids books and beach reads, self-help and more. And we're kicking it off with advice Monday. Stay tuned. I'm including Rachel Friedman on advice Monday because her advice is about creativity, but her book is also memoir as well. So anyway, that's where I put her. (laughs) Rachel is the author of The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost, a memoir of three continents, two friends, and one unexpected adventure that was from 2011 and was a Target breakout book and selected by Goodreads readers as one of the best travel books of 2011. Now she's come out with her second book, which is called And Then We Grew Up on Creativity, Potential, and the Imperfect Art of Adulthood. It received a star review from Publishers Weekly. Her essays and articles have appeared in the best women's travel writing, McSweeney's book of politics and musicals, New York Times, creative nonfiction, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among others graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and the creative nonfiction program at Rutgers Newark with her MFA. She has taught literature, journalism, and writing at Columbia University, New York University, and John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She currently lives in Brooklyn with her son. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad we're finally connecting. (laughs) I I can't believe I have to follow Marion Keys, but (laughs) I'm very glad too. Perhaps I should have put her at the end, but whatever. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, thank you. I Your book was so interesting. I didn't have a big idea of what it would be about other than the, the cover when I started it. And I did not realize you had been this like virtuoso viola player and that you had to give away your, not give away, that you had to pivot so early in life when most people are just like sort of getting upwards on the trajectory. You had already like reached a peak and had to regroup while everyone was like, you know, at college bars or whatever. (laughs) Tell me about this whole experience and, and how it informed your book. Well, in many ways, I think I had to group because I wasn't a virtuoso. <laughs> I was I was very good from a young age. I played first guitar and then piano and then viola. And viola was the instrument that really hooked me. And from a young age, I became quite obsessed with becoming a professional musician. And I went to a very intense performing arts camp called Interlochen, which is the setting for the book because I reconnect with eight former campmates of mine. But yeah, so I was a sort of small fish in a big pond growing up, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people have this experience 
maybe not with music, but with debate or with a sport, you know, where they're very, very, very good. And to the point where you can start to think about professionalizing what you love. And then somewhere along the way, you hit a ceiling and you realize, okay, like I'm, I was pretty good, but I'm actually either not good enough to make it doing what I want to do, or in order to make it doing what I want to do, I'm going to have to give up everything else to, to, you know, to such exclusion of the rest of my life that maybe I actually don't want the thing I thought I wanted. So both of those things happened to me, I think. I hit a talent ceiling and I hit kind of like an ambition ceiling with music. Like I saw that a lot in college with the athletes who had been training all their life, and then suddenly that was not the be all end all anymore, and it was time to regroup. There, and a lot of us have you know images of what our grown up life is going to look like, even if it's not a specific kind of thing we're pursuing. You know, a lot of us when we grow up are facing this gap between like the fantasy of our adult life and and what it actually looks like, and that's really what the book is about. But then after this transition, you regroup and suddenly by age 26, you've published a book and gotten married and you're like on cloud nine, like, you, like this is amazing. And then, I'll, then again, you have to realize that like that was another peak in, in a valley was coming. Yeah. Yes. That's a really lovely way of putting it. So yeah, I had kind of this precocious start to writing, I guess. Publishing my first book felt a little bit like a fluke in some ways, although I'm very proud of that book. But I was young when I published it for for better and for worse. And I thought, okay, now I published a book. Now I'm a writer. Now everything just goes uphill from here. And I'm going to be able to make my full living as a writer. And I'm going to have, you know, famous author friends and I'm going to get awards. It's like the whole fantasy of the writers. Like, you know, I realized that like with music, I had developed this whole, this whole ideal of what it meant to be a writer and these very kind of rigid definitions of success that weren't really based on what I wanted or what was important to me, but what I had kind of like absorbed from external voices. And so like with music, I was at this moment where I, I felt like if I didn't grapple with that artist mythology and what it, what it meant to make an artistic life and what was important to me, I didn't think I was going to give up writing because writing had already proved to be something that had endured unlike music. But I thought, oh, I'm going to be really like bitter <laughs> if I don't get a grip on this at some point, if I don't really kind of take stock of you know, what matters to me and what, what do I really need to feel content as a writer and, and to endure. So I went to track down all these people from this camp where this was a time when everyone I knew, you know, at this camp had very specific ideas about who they wanted to be when they grew up. And Interlochen, which is a camp in Michigan, is just full of so much incredible talent. And it felt to me kind of like the last place when I had really been so sure of who I wanted to be and, and what that would look like. And I was really curious to see if other people had, you know, grappled with this gap and, and what had become of them. And this was pre-Facebook. So, you know, you didn't have <laughs> updates on everyone in the same way. When I went to camp, it was pre-Facebook. And, and even if you do, you, you don't really have any idea what's going on with someone when you see their social media posts. I love how it all came back to you and you kind of drowning your your sorrows about taxes by going to a movie and seeing one of your fellow interlocking friends having success like that. And I think like everyone can relate, although it's not like we don't all say it out loud that like there's always something when you're happy for someone else, like, oh my gosh, how did they do that? And like, what have I done? <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean, it's just like, look at that. <laughs> 
Yeah, this comparison issue we all have. And and so, yeah, we went to camp with Ben Foster, who's a very well-known actor. He's not in the book, although interestingly, as I was working on this book, at many points, people encouraged me to try and interview him. And I always felt like, well, that's not the point of the book. I want to hear from people who are you know, like not famous, not at either end of the spectrum, haven't completely felt like they failed at what they're doing, or maybe they, maybe they have, or kind of middle of the road. And they're trying to figure out too, how to endure. And, you know, Ben Foster, you can read about him in kind of any magazine you pick up, right? But that was the impetus behind the book. So I I was feeling very depressed about my financial situation as a freelance writer. And and I went to a movie and there he was, you know, larger than life starring in it. So that was quite a reckoning. Oh, I'm sorry. I've had, I've been there. Those are not fun feelings. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what was your main takeaway? You went and you found all, all of these people and then you end up actually dating somebody who's friends with one of your, like with Adam and like all these fun things just start happening as you, as you retrace your steps and everybody has different things to share. What do you think were some of the main findings? Yeah, it's a very interesting journey tracking down people who knew you when you were young. (laughs) I do recommend it, but yes, it can be a winding journey full of many surprises. So, you know, everyone in the book really gave me another framework from which to view the issues that I was kind of dealing with. You know, I mean, the book kind of breaks down the mythologies that I had about what it means to succeed, what it means to feel ordinary, what it means to compromise, what ambition looks like, what freedom looks like, you know, all these very amorphous terms we have, you know, and like we have this obsession with perseverance in this country and I'm sure many other countries where, you know, it's kind of like you only fail when you quit. And, you know, that's really not true. I mean, if you have a, you have a quitting problem, that's one thing, but most of us work really hard. And then at some point, often at least some goal at some point we're pursuing, you know, we do hit a ceiling and we have to kind of refocus our energies and that's really good for us. So I think the the main takeaway of the book is that, you know, our lives, we have to design them. There's no like expert out there. There's no like internet article that is going to teach you what success is or tell you, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, this will happen. Like we love formulas. We love this idea that you put in the work and then you reap the rewards. And, you know, I think it's really important to dismantle the kind of cliches and mythologies and really ask yourself the hard questions about what your fulfilling life would look like. That's awesome. By the way, you had probably my favorite expression I've ever heard, the artnership, where you have like people, that is so perfect. Because sometimes I feel like my husband and I were both like very creative and whatever. And like, that's such a nice way. I was like, oh, we have an artnership. That's so great. So tell me about that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's not my phrase. I think that's, that's definitely. Oh, well, I'm going to credit you anyway. Yeah, Yeah, this is, you know, we have the idea of the partnership is, you know, your partner, the person that you end up making a life with is also an artist. And so it's this like kind of romantic ideal of what that looks like. And that too is kind of like a complicated reality, of course, but that's one of the the many things I thought about my life. Like I need to end up with a person who does X you know, because I do why. So that's the term of an partnership. I loved it. I just, that was so great. <laughs> and then your Washington Post article recently was great about teaching your son and not about, well, about evaluating the current theory that people should not allow their kids to quit anything, right? That we should teach all of them to persevere and like 
really, you're not good at the piano, just keep going. And you said, you know, you also have to teach kids the flip side of that, which is like, not every extracurricular is for everybody and that you have to be ready to cope with when things don't work out, which I loved as such great parenting advice and also just life advice. Tell me more, a little more about that. Yeah, I think we're really focused on resilience as it relates to perseverance, but there's also resilience in terms of being able to be disappointed that something didn't work out, like not to wallow in that disappointment, but to understand that there are real setbacks. And most of us, you know, the experience of not getting what you want is such a common human experience, but we talk, we don't talk a lot about it. You know, this idea of disappointment or longing or quitting in a way that is not kind of like rebranding it as opportunity or turning into some <laughs> other narrative, but just, you know, I wanted this thing. I tried really hard. Sucks. You know, and again, it's not about kind of wallowing in that disappointment, but I think giving it a little bit of space to say, you know, I didn't turn out to be an astronaut or whatever it is. You know, I did notice in your book and maybe I missed where you explained it or something, but I feel like you talked a lot about your dad and that he was a retired film critic and he came up a lot and what he would think and what you would say to him. And there wasn't a lot of mention of your mom. And I was just wondering about that. Yeah, I think my dad was probably just a more, a stronger influence to be totally honest in terms of the way I thought about my grown-up life. My mom was very like practical, you know, I mean, my mom supports my writing and, su and supported my music, but I think for her, she grew up poor and became a lawyer and, you know, really felt like her focus understandably was on financial security and financial security is very important. And I talk about in the book, kind of reckoning with that. And my dad, who is a professor and has a different background, you know, grew up in a more comfortable middle-class background you know, for him, the message was always do what you love. You have to be passionate, you know, it was like, have to be passionate about what you do. There's no such thing as just a job. You know, I think he's wrong about that. Ultimately, of course, you know, plenty of people have work-life balance where their job is not the thing that drives them and they derive their fulfillment in other ways. But for me, he was just a very powerful influence. And I saw his life too, this life of the professor, the life of the mind, you know, he writes books, all of that really was influential for me as a kid. Interesting. And I was wondering if you had advice for aspiring authors, and maybe you could weave in the fact that after you sold your first book, your second book didn't sell, and you had to regroup and, and find the way to back, which obviously you did because now we have this amazing book and we're sitting here talking. So um. yeah, I think it's important to say like you have that book nine years after the first one, you know, so that's a good amount of time. It took me a long time to write the second book. I did get pregnant in the middle of the writing process, you know, which will slow things down a little bit. But yeah, my second book was, I just didn't, I couldn't figure out, I think the right framing for that second book and it didn't get a contract and I was really disappointed, obviously. But, you know, I, I think too, with, after a first book, you feel a lot of pressure to have this momentum. And it's a very common experience for the second book not to work out. So that's just one of, the kinds of examples of enduring through disappointment that I think is useful and that we should talk about more. You know, Marion Keys had great advice for writers, which is essentially you write, you sit down and you do it and try to get out of your own way. I think a lot of times people who want to write, who aspire to write, they need permission. You know, I'm not sure who we're looking for permission from, but we are 
the ones who need to give it to ourselves. You are entitled to write, you are entitled to self-expression, like you are entitled to that space. And so to try to like quiet those inner voices and, and you know, she was saying like that we're all writing as Anne Lamont would put it in Bird by Bird, which is a, a brilliant book. If people are looking for inspiration in the writing life, you know, we all write shitty first drafts. Maybe some people don't, but we won't, we'll just consider them outliers. <laughs> but most of us, the way you endure as a writer is through rewriting. You have to have a tolerance for repetition and for revision because what comes out first is messy and often incoherent and not very good. And you can't edit, I think, out that part of it. Like you have to go through that part of it. You know, there's a different part of your brain. This is like the right drunk edit sober expression, which doesn't actually mean drunk drunk, but I think means writing for some people it does, not me, writing without kind of that inner critic, you know, telling you that something is no good. So you just have to get it out and you have to, you have to take time to do it. Writing is a job like anything else. You know, you, you put your hours in. I think sometimes people think, and, and Marion Keyes is saying this too, that's sort of magical. And of course there are magic moments, but I don't think that you have the space for those magic moments unless you're doing the disciplined work of carving out time regularly. I'm not even saying every day, but consistently to put words on a page. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thanks for coming on. It was so nice to connect with you and hear your thoughts. And I felt like such pride for you when you were detailing your journey and then knowing that because I was reading the book that you eventually got to success again. So it was like sort of this, this wonderful you know, thing that you could be holding, holding the answer to what happens to the main character in your hands. <laughs> sort of like a meta. So much anyway. Right. You too. All right. Take care, Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Advice Monday on the July Book Blast. I know that some of these were from the quarantine and some might seem even old, even though they've just come out, but I just had to get them out in one big sweep. And I hope that you've gotten some useful life tips as you've listened today. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at zibbyowens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.